Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. You know, I found a fascinating story this week about the wife of King Louis XIV before she went into labor. Story about her labor. As soon as the queen's contractions started, um, her quiet palace rooms, normally they were quiet because she would be ceremonially confined in the days of her pregnancy, all of a sudden started to fill up with princesses and princes and dukes, countesses, because the birth of a royal baby was considered so important back then that it needed witnesses. In fact, queens would often labor, believe it or not, before great groups of people, audiences back then, and that would be a factor that would only exacerbate their misery and their anxiousness and and labor. But the idea was the crush of all these guests were to make sure through witnessing that the baby wasn't substituted for a dead baby or that a boy wasn't substituted for a girl that kind of thing, because they wanted to make sure there would be no confusion in a royal birth. And why I tell you that little story, that little anecdote, is because I'm going to tell you right now, there will be no confusion whatsoever when the greatest king of all creation comes back to our world, signifying, in a sense, the delivery of this world from a long, intense period of labor pain. And that delivery is going to be the kingdom of God on earth. Everyone on this planet is going to witness this. Earth has been pregnant with evil, pain, suffering, injustice for a long time now, hasn't it? And all of that is going to even intensify like labor pains do before the delivery, before the very end of time. And I was thinking about injustice this week, as many of you know about the Parkland sentencing with Nicholas Cruz that was just announced. When our king comes back, all injustices like that are going to be corrected, for sure. And so what we have before us in this text is the focal point of world history. This is the event on God's daytimer that is coming. There's nothing bigger than this. This is the one Christians have been waiting for since Christ first came and the church was planted. This is the event that unbelievers are going to be looking for rocks to hide under when it happens. The Bible tells us this is the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, his incarnation, God in the flesh, is split between his two advents. That means arrivals. The first coming, you know, he was born as a baby when, according to Galatians, the fullness of time had come. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And what was the reason for his first advent? Well, that was to inaugurate his kingdom from above and to pay the price of redemption. In his own words, he said, I came to seek and save that which is lost. And so this text is the long-awaited and much-anticipated return of Christ, the second coming, which is very different from the first one, as we're going to see. 
And folks, I want to tell you, we cannot dismiss this doctrine of the second coming as being unimportant, too hard to figure out. Some people think that in and out of the church. It's just too important. It is one of those hills to die on we talk about. Brick wall doctrines. The reality of the second coming. Not so much the details of it, but the reality, the truth, that Jesus Christ is a risen and coming again Savior. There we go. In fact, a little trivia, but important trivia. 260 chapters of the New Testament there are 318 references to the second coming. That is an amazing one out of every 30 verses. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to this event. And for every prophecy in the Bible concerning Christ's first advent or first coming, there are eight that refer to his second. I think God wants us to know this, do you think? And what triggered this text, believe it or not, was just an observation and a question we saw at the beginning of this chapter as Jesus and the disciples sat down on the Mount of Olives they're overlooking the beautiful walled silly city of Jerusalem and they're looking at the temple as the Sun is setting it's gleaming it's bright on that late Tuesday of the Passion Week and this is what happens at the beginning of the chapter I say look teacher what wonderful stones what wonderful buildings and Jesus said to them do you see those great buildings there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then the inner circle, the three, Peter, James, John, and then Andrew, Peter's brother, they ask him this question. Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Why did they ask that? Well, the disciples figured the destruction of the temple basically meant, people, the end of the world. That's what it would be to a Jew. In fact, in Matthew 24, though, we get a little bit more, because that's the more elaborate teaching of the Olivet Discourse. And it says in the middle of Matthew 24, 3, they ask, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Ah. And so you're going to remember, the Lord gave this very long answer that we have in all of chapter 13, what's known as the Olivet Discourse, and he starts to talk about tribulation, and he uses this analogy of a pregnant woman's labor pains to describe what's going to take place in the world at the beginning of the end, and it's going to start in their lifetime, the first century, and then we get parallel events that are going to take place in the future, wars, famines, false messiahs and prophets, persecution of God's people, the destruction of the temple, and the holy city. I said silly again, I don't know why. Including the desecration, the destruction of the temple, and the entire city. And that's going to involve the Antichrist. There's going to be disasters of every kind, above and below the earth, like have never happened before. And one more thing, the preaching of the gospel has to reach the entire world first before he comes. All that has to happen, Jesus said, before he comes back in the last days. So the labor pains are going to end because the baby's born, right? Well, that's what Jesus is talking about in this analogy when he's returning to consummate or complete the kingdom 
of God on earth as he promised and as the word of God predicted that he would. So, here at last, this is what we should be expecting. This is what we should be praying for. This is the Lord's teaching on his second coming in the language of its duration, its revelation, and then we'll look at the congregation that's going to be a part of it. Let's look at the duration or the time of this in chapter 13, back in the text, verses 24 and 25. In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. In those days, what is that? That's an Old Testament expression describing in this context the last days, what the Old Testament also called the day of the Lord. That's a time of just great distress and anguish, literally, on earth. Great tribulation. In fact, verse 19 told us this would be the greatest tribulation of all time that's coming. In this day, this time period signals also the arrival of the Messiah, great king of Israel to come. He's going to rule. He's going to reign. He's going to bring judgment on Israel's enemies. That kingdom would then bring, usher in a glorious return to an Eden type of world, a time of peace and prosperity on earth. That's probably as much as what the Jews would know at that time. Now, let's deal with it. Let's just introduce it right up front. As you're probably aching to know, does Jesus come first to rapture, literally means, it's a Latin word, to snatch up his church before all of this, sparing us from the tribulation time. You may like my answer, you may not. The answer is maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. I hope so. I dearly hope so. I mean, does anyone want to go through the tribulation? I don't. There is a sequence of the duration or the time of these events. There's an order of events, but there's not a chronology. In other words, we don't have an exact time when this will happen. So if you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, then the Lord would come at any moment, rapture or take out his church before the seven-year tribulation time described in Revelation. That's where you would be of the position of a pre-tribulational rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, a lot of people point to, sounds like that event. There are some other scriptures that make an argument for that. Then Jesus comes again, and the church congregates and returns with Christ in the millennial kingdom after that seven-year tribulation time, which would connect with the description of the second coming. But if you believe, as many evangelicals do, and we traditionally have here at Christ Community Church, you would have to believe there's two second comings, two different events, one private, kind of for the church only, one public, which a number of our brothers and sisters in the faith struggle with, and which I understand. One event, you say, why, why two events? One event to rapture the church out before the tribulation, Lord takes us to heaven, John 14 may point that way. Then the second one, after the tribulation, which is what this text is about. So I understand the argument on both sides. It's a problem. Right? We have to try to harmonize, and we'll do that soon enough. But here, the Olivet Discourse 
seems to be talking about just one simultaneous event, which is the saints, you will see, rise to meet the Lord in the air. Verse 27, First Thessalonians may talk about that as well. And they welcome him, this victorious king, and accompany him back to earth as its rightful ruler to reign. And so that would imply, if true, the church will go through the tribulation, at least a part of it, if not at the end. So what makes this hard, of course, harmonizing the gospel, is you have letters to the Thessalonians, you have the book of Revelation, you've got the Old Testament. You've got to try to connect some dots because the Lord Jesus does not tell the apostles here when that day or the year of his return or a rapture would be or how long that day of his coming and the judgment would last. There's no language of a rapture taking place in the Olivet Discourse at all. That needs to be said. Maybe TMI would be too much information for us. Probably was for the apostles back then. Honestly, I'm not sure why. All that is clear. And what is clear is what's most important. And what's important has to be clear is that the second coming could happen at any moment after these things take place in verses 24 and 25. And that's why the argument that the Lord would come after these things in the generation, the lifetime of the apostles in the first century, like some read verse 30, doesn't really hold water. Because generation there could be a figure of speech that refers to uh, a group of people or a nation. Some people think that's referring to Israel. Or uh, sinners, I don't think it's either one of those things. And you say, why? And you'll hear more about this next week. But these things haven't yet all happened. The Lord hasn't come yet. So at best, there's a partial fulfillment of these prophecies, and there's more to come. So again, it's that kingdom idea I, I told you about. Always hold this intention when you're talking about prophecy. There's the already and the not yet. Both dimensions are true. You have to hold them both. This is why Jesus also draws a little contrast between uh, the destruction of the temple and the city, which was called the abomination of desolation. Remember, from the one to come, there's going to be another one. And all the other things that have to happen in the future. I think the best interpretation of generation, by the way, is the lifetime of those people that are going to literally witness those things. Now, you should know. Old Testament prophecy paralleled and predicted all these kinds of things would happen. And you see that kind of previewing verses 24 and 25. I want to show you a little bit of it so you see the continuity in this. Isaiah, you should make a note about Isaiah. Chapter 13, give you a taste of it, verse 9 and 10. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. How is that possible? Wow. Chapter 34, verse 4. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves from the, fall from the vine, the leaves falling from the fig tree. And we'll get more into that analogy next time. 
Ezekiel 32 talks about that. Joel talks about that. Joel talks about it in chapter 2 and verses 10, verse 30, verse 31 uses this language about cosmic signs and the skies, the moon, and the heavens being disrupted on the day of the Lord. And in verse 25 that we have in our text, that is previewed by, well, actually consummated in Revelation 6 because they use the fig tree analogy there in the same way. So there's going to be these things happening in the sky, the heavens closest to us. There might be comets. There might be meteorites falling on earth. That would fit the description of the heavens being shaken, our text says. Literally from the original Greek language, it's something that's moved and disturbed, put in motion. Could be by winds and storms, things like that. The sun and the moon are going to be deprived by its light, deprived of its light. So you know what that means to me? I think there's going to be total darkness, day and night. But you won't be able to tell it's day or night. It'll be dark all the time. Of which, so that means this duration, time of events, back in our text, leads to this awesome thing, verse 26. And then they, they is, they, everyone, will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. At that time, Everyone on the earth is going to see, literally means behold what appears, the Son of Man. No one is going to miss this. This will be the most spectacular event in modern human history. I can't even state that enough. Everything would be an understatement. The lights are going to come on in the world because the light of the world, Jesus Christ, is coming down. This prophecy seems to come from Daniel 7, talking about the Son of Man setting up the kingdom given to him by his Father, known as the Ancient of Days there. And this would be predicted again by Christ while he's being held in custody by the Jews just 48 hours after giving this teaching. If you flipped over to chapter 14, verse 62, he's being interrogated before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and Jesus said, talking about being the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, he said, I am, and you will, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And you know, the Jews hated him for saying that. Because in essence, he's claiming to be God. There he goes, doing it again. So, the one who first came to suffer and die to save his people is saying he's going to come back as a warrior and a judge to rule and reign over earth, setting up a kingdom in this glorious return that further proves his deity because only God, think about it, can manifest or show himself from heaven with this kind of Shekinah glory or majesty or could be translated as brightness and power. Folks, we've talked about before that the word awesome is used too much today, too casually. That's an awesome burger. That's an awesome game or whatever. This event is truly awesome. The most awesome thing that has ever happened will happen on the face of the earth. Nothing like it. And you ask yourself, 
how could this be? How could he pull this off? Well, this is a supernatural event, right? The entire planet's going to have an opportunity to see it once. You ask yourself, well, really? I'll just tell you. How could God have created the world just by the word of his power? I'll ask you, how could he have parted the Red Sea or raised Jesus from the dead? Nothing's too hard for God. This is the power of God on display. And by the way, with satellite TV and the 24-hour technology available to us today, every network is going to be tuned into this. Every iPhone, every PC is going to be focused on Jesus. You better believe it as he's coming out of the clouds. You talk about a serious social media post and a video gone viral. Everyone, whoa! And listen, this is not unexpected. He's coming back the same way he left six weeks after he gave this teaching. I would just show you very quickly Acts, the book of Acts. In chapter 1, the church has been birthed, right? Jesus has been with the disciples. He's just given them the great commitment to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, all over the world. And then it says, Acts 1.9, when he said these things as they were looking on, the apostles, he was what? Lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Those would be angels, I'm sure. And said, men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He goes up, he's coming down from the clouds. And when we're talking about this judgment and his second coming, it's not that great white judgment that you may be familiar with that comes after the millennial kingdom of Christ on earth. Jesus is going to come back with his saints. That means believers, including his army of angels. It's going to be believers from the past and the present to defeat the last remaining enemies of the Lord on earth, including the Antichrist and the false prophet. Turn to Revelation. I think you can find that book. Chapter 19. And we'll take a peek at what we're reading about here and what it reads and sounds like in the end in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, this is John writing, and behold a white horse, the one sitting is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he what? Judges and makes war. This is not the soft, meek, and mild, gentle Jesus of the first coming people love to think about. This is a warrior king. Who's coming? His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crown. He has a written name written on it, no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the Word of God. Logos, like John 1. And the armies of heaven, here you are, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Horses, I think, are symbolic, but we're coming down. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of, the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, think of a banner that stretches across the shoulder, 
from here to there. He has a name written on it, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the part of the wrath of God on the earth that the enemies of God are going to know it and they're going to want to hide from it. Our Lord, according to Luke's account, in fact, said there would be men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. Word's going to get around fast. Many are going to be destroyed by this second coming. Others will rejoice at his second coming. I mean, just picture it. He's coming down, and the unbelievers are going to be like, I knew it, I knew it, we blew it, and we're going to die. And that's what's going to happen to millions. The first chapter of Revelation makes it clear. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Who's that? The unbelieving Jews, as per Zechariah. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Of course they will. So if you're on earth, when he comes in his glory, the big question you have to ask yourself before you leave the room today is which group you're going to be in and your loved ones. And the point of Scripture that Paul gives in his take on this and his two letters to the Thessalonians is not to obsess about the exact timing of this But again, as I take you to 1 Thessalonians 5, what are the consequences of this, the implications? Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, the first three verses. Paul writes, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. What? For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, second coming, same thing, will come like a thief in the night. Thieves don't announce when they're coming. They don't knock in the door, hello, I'm here to rip you off. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. Look at the analogy. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And just another indication of how massive this wrath is going to be, how complete the Lord's victory in ours is going to be. Listen as I take you back to Revelation 19. We're just jumping over some stuff here to really tie these things together. Listen to the very graphic language again of what this is going to look like. Revelation 19, pick it up in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God. This great supper of God is not the marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding reception with the church in Christ. That's just happened. That's not it. This is what it is for the birds. Verse 18, why does he gather them? To eat the flesh of all kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, beast, antichrist, with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, right? One world religion, the second beast. And he is the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two, 
were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged. That means filled to the point they can't take in anymore with their flesh. So, who is the one coming in vengeance, righteousness, and justice against evil that day? Jesus. And then finally, come back to us. Look at verse 27 of our text, and we're done. And then he, Jesus, will send out the angel and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. You notice that even though in Revelation 19 that we just heard the languages of the Messiah coming again in war to rule and reign, in this verse, the only purpose of the second coming mentioned is the gathering of the scattered elect, which is the congregation, his church. And that emphasis is big because I think what the apostles were going through and were going to go through and perhaps, perhaps what we're going to go through. This is the hope, the blessed hope. Because no matter where his church is, and we know the early church was going to be dispersed all over the ancient world in the first century, he would gather them up from one end of the earth to the other. He doesn't lose, Jesus doesn't lose anyone that belongs to him, okay? In fact, Jesus in Matthew tells us that an alarm clock is going to ring, the loud trumpet call that signals that his elect are going to be gathered. So this congregation that's coming together has got a little bit of everybody in Christ. Resurrection of Old Testament believers, the great believers of faith. Believers martyred, dying for the faith as witnesses during the tribulation. And tens of thousands of Jews are going to be saved during the tribulation time so that both Zechariah 13 and Romans 11 is fulfilled. The partial hardening of the Jews is going to end. What a glorious, folks, redemption that is going to be. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 31, I love the language there in verse 8, that prophet speaking on God's behalf, behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant women and she who is in labor, together, a great company, and they shall return here. Return where? Mount Zion, Jerusalem, holy city. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel. Isn't that great? So finally, they are going to see and know their Messiah. They're going to trust him. They're going to love him, everyone left in Israel. And they're going to receive him in that messianic kingdom that God has promised them. People, the Lord is giving us this message because it generates again what Paul calls the blessed hope in the time of tribulation. Labor pains get worse in the end for a mother, but here's the idea. She has that hope, confident expectation. She gets excited about what's going to happen. What is going to happen? The birth of her baby. No different for us. For us, it's the full birth of the kingdom on earth. This is what we're waiting for. 
So I'm going to give you at least four reasons, if you're taking note, why we should hope for the second coming. Four reasons, and this is not all-inclusive. There are more. So these are kind of summary ideas. Then I'm going to give you a little surprise one at the end before we close in prayer. Tell you why the first reason. Resurrection and the golden age. Resurrection and the golden age of humanity. What do I mean? Well, you get a resurrection body when the Lord comes back. Don't we want that? What a time it's going to be. You're going to have a body, a perfected body forever. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. And Isaiah prophesied it this way at the end of that book almost, chapter 65. Listen to the golden age of what is to come on earth. Verse 19. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. So people in the millennial kingdom will be living far beyond a hundred years. That'll be normative. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They'll eat, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not plant and another eat for all the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. That, that drudgery and work goes away. I shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. Isn't that great? Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. That means peace. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. He's no longer a carnivore. Dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Revelation chapter 20. So you can bookend this, gives the same kind of language. Revelation 20 is the chapter about the millennial kingdom. Half a dozen times it says, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. That's what we're talking about. Over such the second one has no death. But they... That's us, it's you and me. We're going to be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Second reason why we should hope for the second coming. The Lord and his righteousness are going to reign on earth. Remember I talked about justice? Well, Philippians 2, Paul wrote when he comes back, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah, amen. How about that? I'm going to enjoy that. Isaiah 65, again, verse 13. It's going back there a few verses. The Lord says, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you, meaning the rebellious, shall be hungry. This is in the kingdom. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. My servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of heart. Spirit, And it goes on like that, verse after verse. Third reason why you can hope for the second coming. Final victory over sin and Satan. Folks, I'd say that's pretty good. Revelation 20, I bring you there again. I pick it up in verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. He's locked up during the millennial kingdom for a thousand years, just about the Lord loosens him, 
looses him, cuts the chain, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. He'll get help, Gog, Magog. And I know there's a lot of speculation on who that is. We're not going there. doesn't matter. To gather them for battle. Their number will be like the sand of the sea. So this massive army comes with Satan to a place called Megiddo. And this will be the battle of Armageddon. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, that's Megiddo, and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Oh, it looks tough for us. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And all God's people said... Those are three reasons. Lastly, of what I have here, peace and prosperity. That's another reason to hope for, be confidently expecting the second coming. Isaiah 2, 4, and Revelation again, 20, verse 3. Satan's thrown in the pit, shut it, sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years have ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. We saw what happens to him then. Satan is in jail. There's peace and prosperity for the entirety of the thousand-year millennial kingdom. Listen, there's a lot more that could be said about life for us in the millennial kingdom to come on the heels of the second coming of Christ. For instance, another temple is going to be built for all the nations in the world to worship Christ. The closest thing to the Garden of Eden returning is back in the kingdom. Poverty, injustice, will be unknown, basically. Jesus is king and ruler of the world. No more elections, no more politics. Amen to that. The lion lies down with the lamb. This is the golden age of earth. Now, do you get the picture as to why we should be looking forward to this? Right? But we need to be reminded that this is also the time where the Lord is going to send his angels to separate the sheep, that's the elect, from the goats, that's the unredeemed. It's really synonymous earlier in Matthew with the idea of the wheat and the tares, or the weeds. In fact, let me give you a taste of what that'll sound like. Matthew, all about discourse still, but Matthew gets it in the chapter, 20, chapter 25 as well. Verse 31, the Lord says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne before Him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right. That's the church. That's the real church. But the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's us. But then skip down to verse 41 if you're there. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There are some people that would like to believe, even professing Christians, 
that there's no hell, there's no torment after you die, you're kind of your soul, your spirit's annihilated and all of that. That sounds really nice, but that's not what Jesus just said. Everybody lives forever. You only live in one of two places. That's it. But you will live forever. You are immortal. Right now you're immortal people sitting in a mortal body. But then you'll get an immortal body, 1 Corinthians 15, at the resurrection of the just and the unjust, and you will live forever. And you know what place we're talking about, where is eternal fire. Why do I mention this? Again, there's several things to keep in mind here. Sharing your faith in Christ as a witness who gives his testimony in the gospel is a big deal, right? That's God's plan. The gospel has to be completed, by the way, in the time of the Gentiles, that's this church age, before he comes back. He's waiting on us to finish the job. And you say, Pastor, people don't want to hear and think about this today. This is too heavy. It's too hard. It's too unbelievable. Too controversial. I'll grant you that. People don't want to believe in the gospel, much less the second coming of Jesus. I get that. The Apostle Peter dealt with this, by the way, in his second letter when he talked about sinful scoffers who doubted the Lord and the plan. 2 Peter 3, 4. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, means died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Yesterday was the same as the day before. Nothing has changed since last week, since last month, last year. They may tell you, you know, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus first came. Well, this, this is not going to happen. Or it probably won't happen in my lifetime. What's your rush, Christian? When I see the signs, stuff falling from the air, I'll believe, I'll believe then. That's weak. That's risky. That is a reason why I think there's a compelling argument, by the way, to a pre-tribulational rapture, why that's plausible. Because it can come at any moment without warning signs like an abomination of desolation and so forth and so on. But do we know the day or the hour? And do we know the Lord's timetable and His calendar? We don't. I'm still in 2 Peter, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. If you take that hyper-literally, that means we're only two days into the church age. Right? Two thousand years. Why? The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. There it is again. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Sounds like our text a little bit, doesn't it? So talking to the doubter and the unbeliever in the moment, you might want to tell them, if you wait, it may be too late. And the Lord gives a heads up. It's pretty timely on this in Luke, in the parallel account of the Olivet Discourse. Luke 21. Hang in there. Almost done. Verse 34. Jesus says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation 
and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Don't just be thinking about party, party, party. It can come at any moment, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Are you ready today to stand before the Son of Man? And if you're, re if you're not ready and you don't want Christ before He comes, well, Jesus says you may be one of the ones taken out and you may wind up in that place where there is the wailing and gnashing of teeth. So Christian, what else do we do? I'm just telling you, be, be awake, be alert, spiritually. Because Jesus didn't want his disciples to be involved in the prophecies of the future in the, in the extent that you're preoccupied and obsessed with the details of the timing and all that sort of thing, the day and the hour. So what the Lord did was he closed the Olivet Discourse with two parables. And Matthew 25 adds three of them, the bridesmaid with the oil and the talents and the sheep and the goats to picture and point out that the Lord wants to find his church ready, working, serving, loving, and testifying when he gets here. Remember we said when we started this discourse, this chapter, we said that Christians should be found busy with kingdom and gospel priorities for when Jesus comes back. The Bible says we should seek to live holy and godly lives and should encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching, which is the second coming. Again, encourage. I gave you those reasons why we look forward to the second coming. So people, go to work, work hard, do well in school, enjoy God's good gifts, get married, have kids, plant roots in the ground of your lives and your families where you are, and as I close, think of what's ahead. You know, some, some experts think that this millennia, you know, we're in the 21st century, is going to be full of wonders, that this will be like the greatest thing ever. Uh, there's going to be homes run by like a finger touch, uh, 20 years of power and a suitcase-sized battery. I read that. Uh, planets that'll, I should say planes, planes that are going to race 5,000 miles per hour overhead for travel. Push-button weather that makes the deserts bloom, they say, and turns hurricanes back to the sea. Wouldn't we like that in Florida? Ten-hour work weeks. Crazy stuff, crazy stuff. But what I believe the Bible teaches is a glorious, blessed millennium to come when our Lord Jesus comes back that blows away anything that has ever happened or been conceived. Folks, I want that. I'll share with you my own heart. You know, we talked about four reasons why you should want to wait or hope for the blessed hope, Christ returning in the kingdom. I just have one main one. It's in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him and see him as he is. You know why I can't wait for the second coming? You know why I hope for it? I just want to be with Jesus. I don't need anything else. I don't want anything else. I'll take whatever he gives me. I 
just want to be with my Lord who died for me and saved me. Isn't that enough? Don't you want to be with the king? I sure do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, your precious word. That is our food. And to do your will is our food as it was for you to do the Father's will. Lord, there's so many things we like about your good, gracious, plentiful gifts on earth that we enjoy, even in a world full of mayhem and chaos and evil that we see around us and injustice. And that's all fine and good, Lord. You have us here for a reason. We're going to be, our, our biggest goal, one way, shape, or form, how we live and how we talk, is to do the one thing we won't do in heaven, which is share the gospel, evangelize, and how we walk and talk. So we know it's why we're still here, but Lord, I hope we have a newfound appreciation in the blessed hope of the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our King. As John ended the Bible, Lord, I pray that you would come quickly. I really do. Come quickly. Take us home. Take us home to yourself. Take what's rightfully yours, this kingdom. Save many, Lord, during the terrible day of the Lord that will be. And Lord, may we be alert. May we be awake today to show and share Christ as we live today. And we look expectantly to the sky when it's all dark and we'll see the greatest light that has ever been shown in the world comes. Oh, how we look forward to that day, Lord. And again, if someone here today has come in not knowing what side there will be when the Lord comes to separate the sheep from the goats, if there is any expectation or if there is any idea that they may be a goat in a place of sheep, May today be the day of salvation that they would turn to you, that somebody here, somebody listening would turn to you and repent, Lord. Turn away from sin and selfishness and self to you, to believe in you, to be saved by faith for the forgiveness of sins. We pray in Jesus' name and we said, let's sing. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.ChristComChurch.org. That's ChristComChurchCOM.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage.